This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages, a podcast where we take a look at the interconnectedness of our medieval past, the stories it holds, and how these stories directly shape the world we live in today. I'm your host, Jonathan, and I want to thank everyone who is subscribing, downloading, and listening to the show, but a special thanks to those who are sharing it on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. I truly, truly appreciate it. Now this, I want to jump right into it here. This is our 17th and last episode of our third season of the podcast, a season focusing predominantly on the chaos that erupted following the death of Canute the Great. Today's episode, episode 51, here it is folks, is entitled A New Age. I hope you enjoy the show. Timing. It's everything. Historians are pressed to determine that September 8th was a likely date that William set off for England, as that was when reports of the channel's frustrating northerly winds began to subside. However, due to events taking place in a matter of less than a week from then, which we will get to in just a moment, that still doesn't quite seem right. By September 8th, though, it's probably safe to assume that the last few ships being built up the Norman coasts were pulling into port near the mouth of the River Deve, Duke William's main base of operations for the invasion. It was recorded on September 13th and 14th that a nasty storm suddenly blew through the channel. Well, much to William's dismay, His fleet was scattered and were forced to reassemble and reorganize, accounting for the losses of both man and material suffered at sea, eventually creating a new temporary base of operations upcoast at St. Valery. So it's most likely that September 13th was the date William ordered the crossing. By September 15th, William was rethinking his crossing, and as was normal in those days, he felt that he was being punished for something. It seemed that all of his efforts to create such an invasionary force, including submitting his daughter to the cloth and seeking a papal banner for the undertaking, simply wasn't enough in the eyes of God. So William went to church at St. Valery. For most of a day, William prayed and left offerings to the saint in residence, promising that should he succeed, he would create a holy site on English soil to honor and respect that saint. Still, he didn't receive any positive signals at this because, as the poem poem Carmen de Hastingue Proelio about the Battle of Hastings, written by a contemporary of Williams named Bishop Guy of Amiens, says, It was cold and wet, and the sky was hidden by clouds and rain. This was for several days after. Within days, William upped the ante and ordered every man in his service to pray and make offerings to St. Valery, even digging up the body of the saint and bringing it out into the light of day for all his men to see and worship. And the eyes and wind, excuse me, and the skies and winds eventually shifted and cleared. Well, it wasn't suddenly. In fact, it took well over a week for the weather to lift, but that's neither here nor there. William's forces cheered up and were of single focus, ready the fleet for war. The poem, The Carmen, states, Immediately all were of one mind and purpose to entrust themselves to the sea calm at last. 
Now, to us today, it was simply a weather pattern, but to the people of the 11th century Europe, it was divine action, and the men, apparently, were jubilant. Oh, what a great noise suddenly erupts from that place as the sailors seek their oars, the knights their arms, the Carmen describes it. William boarded his ship, a gift commissioned and prepared by his wife, Duchess Matilda of Flanders. It was called Mora. And as Mark Morris describes it, he says, quote, At the prow of the vessel stood the figure of a small, gilded boy, holding a horn to his lips with one hand and pointing toward England with the other. End quote. As the sun dipped below the horizon, that is around 9 p.m. on Wednesday, September 27th, the tide was high at St. Valery, and traveling upwards of four knots, they would reach Pevensey, England, by 9 a.m. Thursday, September 28th. When the sun rose, there wasn't a boat to be seen on the channel waters. It seemed in William's eagerness he had ordered the oarsmen to push as hard as they could to reach the other side so that the Mora moved far ahead of the rest of his fleet. However, according to William of Poitiers, the Duke wasn't worried. He ate a big breakfast, washed it down with some wine, and then, around 8 a.m., other ships began popping up on the horizon. Arriving in Pevensey Bay, they repurposed the fort there in the Norman style by digging ditches and building walls and ramparts. It was very unlike anything the lands of England had ever seen rise above it. This was the hastily thrown together fortifications perfected by continental Normans and would become a staple to medieval England, let alone on the mainland. This was the earliest versions of the castle, the foremost defensive structure for the next few hundred years. There on the shores of England, William watched his army of thousands offloading supplies, armor, weapons, food, and even horses. Hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of horses. Thinking of his next step, William reviewed what he knew so far. It was just a few days before he left the mainland that he heard word of King Harold Godwinson's own brother, Tostig, arriving far to the north in Yorkshire with the legend, Harold Hardrada, King of Norway. No doubt there would be resistance by northern armies, but William had no idea what had happened in the previous week, as news just didn't travel that quickly then. And Mark Morris unfolds this realization the best, so I'll just quote him when he says, quote, It is also likely that, in the days that followed, the Normans learned about the arrival in Yorkshire of Tostig and Harold Hardrada. They cannot, however, have heard about the Battle of Stamford Bridge on the 25th of September, before their departure from St. Valery just two or three days earlier. It is a fact that has been noted by historians many times in the past, but it is no less arresting for all that. William arrived in England not knowing which Harold he was going to have to fight. End quote. And I say, yet, William still went. This is, as far as I'm concerned, a largely unspoken testament to the soon-to-be conqueror's legend. William, it can be surmised, just didn't care who was wearing the crown when he arrived, it seemed. That crown, in his eyes at least, was his by right. Soon, both men knew the truth of what laid ahead. 
Harold was notified of William's landing no earlier than Monday, October 1st, and in the previous days from his landing to Harold receiving the news, William had not only fortified the existing English defenses, but had also built various Mott and Bailey defensive structures, behind which to hide themselves should a surprise militia engage them. In addition to that, he had ordered his army not to touch a single crop in a field or hair on a Norman's head while they resided in Normandy. But they weren't in Normandy anymore. And William's intelligence had enlightened him of the various land holdings King Harold Godwinson had there in Sussex, specifically those held in and around the village of Hastings, just a dozen miles east of Pevensey. While Harold moved south, William's knights rode around the countryside, terrorizing the towns and farms in the area, burning buildings, reaping the crops. Remember, Harold had recently disbanded his southern armies for two main reasons. Supplies were running short while they, waited William, while they awaited William's attack, and it was time to harvest the fields. And creating a general feeling of discomfort and fear in England, it's a tactic mentioned in the past on the podcast that William was employing here. If you can destroy enough of a man's sources of support, then those supporters begin to question their Lord's ability to do so in the future, resulting in those supporters to shift allegiances. It's an age-old tactic for a reason. It works. However, it wasn't exactly useful in England in 1066. In fact, the people of England were so exhausted with foreigners trying to take what was theirs that they were not having any of it. Very minor pockets of localized uprisings were quickly and easily put down by Norman forces, but let them stand as England's brave corps of independence that would only grow as the centuries went on. Harold rushed to London, making it in near record time. This time, historians believe it was right at four days. This was around Saturday, October 6th when he charged into his stronghold near Westminster Abbey, where he called his family and other noblemen to his side. There was no time to waste. He knew William. He ordered many noblemen from all parts of the kingdom to hastily rustle up as many levies as they could and meet him at a place soon to be called Senlac Hill, just a couple miles outside of the village of Hastings. Within a day or two, Harold's English forces were beginning to balloon into hundreds, and he began making plans to march south as soon as possible. His family, that is, his mother, Githa, his brothers, Earls Leofwina and Gerth, and his sister, the Dowager Queen, Edith, Swanneck, urged him to stay and wait for the full force of England to be at his back. Besides, they needed time to grieve the loss of their son and brother, Tostig, especially Githa, Though Edith was hit particularly hard by Tostig's death, it's said, because among her beloved brothers, it seems Tostig was who she was closest to. One story has Harold in a fury, pushing his mother aside and storming toward the door in full armor. Surprise worked against Hardrada, and as far as Harold was concerned, William was no Hardrada. In fact, Europe agreed there simply was no Hardrada other than Harold Sigurdsson himself but he's now dead. The Normans were fierce and they were skilled, but they couldn't possibly be as cunning as Hardrada. And Harold had just defeated Hardrada. The king now mobilized his forces, enough's enough, after just six days in London, and he marched the 70 miles south to Hastings, Leofwina and Gerth following him. 
Now, the two opponents had most certainly been exchanging correspondences during these two weeks, and William of Poitiers sums up the sums them up, excuse me, by stating that Duke William offered King Harold all of Wessex in exchange for him giving up his crown and returning to the title of Earl, to which King, uh, King Harold made the counteroffer that he will allow William to leave England unscathed if William repaid him for the damage the Normans caused during their little visit. So you can imagine how all of this went over. <laughs> As Harold left London, William ramped up his efforts to goad the king into making a mistake. He specifically targeted innocence. The Bayou Tapestry shows Normans lighting a house on fire with a mother and a child still inside. It was a war on terror here. But these weren't just any peasants and any fields. These were specifically Harold's peasants and properties now. As Mark Morris writes, quote, William, for the first time in his career, was engaged in a battle-seeking strategy. In William's devastation, therefore, we discern a deliberate attempt to provoke a fight. End quote. Everyone from John of Worcester to the Anglo-Saxon Chronicles admits that King Harold was in too much of a hurry to leave London, his forces not yet fully collected from around the kingdom. But Harold? <laughs> King Harold was in no mood for it. So Harold had upwards of 7,000 soldiers, almost 2,000 Huskarls and another 5,000 or so feared militia, while his spies were telling him that William had landed about the same number, only he had roughly 5,000 heavy infantry, 1,500 cavalry knights, and another 1,000 archers. Harold must have reasoned that if he could establish a defensive position up on what would again become Senlac Hill, which, by the way, I'm just going to refer to it this hill as Senlac Hill for um, for continuity's sake from now on. If he could just establish a defensive position up on Senlac Hill, then that might account for any difference in number that William might have over him. Besides, most battles were over fairly quickly, a matter of hours, if not less. So Harold just needed to hold out until his reinforcements arrived, which... Shouldn't be, but another day, maybe two. Also, if William could be taken by surprise, that might negate the extra defense the heavy infantry might weld because, well, it ain't easy donning all that gear. It takes time. It may not have been the smartest move on Harold's part, in hindsight, but armchair quarterbacking a thousand-year-old battle seems pretty easy, if you ask me. I can at least understand why Harold made the choices he did, even if they didn't quite work in his favor at the end of the day. William of Jumiege said that William ordered his men, upon hearing of Harold's departure, to quote-unquote, stand at arms from dusk to dawn. As the sun rose, however, the English were not there. So again, very unlike him, William moved his army. William went a-hunting. Instead of Harold surprising William on the morning of October 14th, as the D Chronicle put it, quote, William came upon him unexpectedly before his army was set in order, end quote. So the tables have turned. William's riders came back and reported Harold's army was nested up on a hill, a hill with a grayish apple tree, so the story goes, and looked tired from their march. By the time William arrived, it was just before 9 a.m., Morris questioned which army might be more exhausted, which I find interesting. 
Everything I've read and watched paints King Harold's army as the exhausted ones. However, if you remember, this wasn't the same army, necessarily, that Harold had way up north. Harold disbanded most of his northern army after Stamford Bridge because he hadn't heard yet that William was even on his way. Any army he raised came days later when he was planning in London. And as for William, he had the men at the ready all night long, and then just after dawn he marched them seven miles northwest toward Senlac Hill. In fact, they were in such a rush that William of Poitiers, who was a knight in his youth before turning to the cloth, mind you, and who knew such things, reported that Duke William actually put his hauberk on backwards. Duke William, <laughs> he could only laugh it off, but everyone else was like, oh my gosh, this is not a good sign. But off they went, and as they settled into formation at the bottom of Sinlac Hill, the English, by this time, in tight shield wall formation, William set his archers to the front and ordered volley after volley to test Harold's defenses. Well, this proved fruitless, of course, as firing uphill is a largely fruitless venture when shield walls were used especially. A stray arrow certainly slipped through the narrow holes and cracks between shields, but it hardly did any substantive damage at all. But while the archers were keeping the English busy for a moment, William mounted his horse and rode in front of his army. Morris writes, quote, William reminded the Normans of their past victories and his own unbroken record and exhorted them to prove their valor. He also stressed, with good reason, the do-or-die nature of the imminent conflict, reminding his men that retreat was not an option. Lastly, he played down the martial reputation of the English, saying that they had been defeated many times in the past. Quote, never were they famed for their glory of their feats of arms. End quote. Up the hill, King Harold arranged his trained huscarls to man the center to which he formed into as well. Flanking these huscarls were the untrained, or largely not as trained, fjords mainly from Sussex and Wessex, who were the first to answer his call back in London. These were largely peasants, though they were led by skilled and experienced thanes who held the front lines. As for William, he drew back his archers and drew up his lines so that each group, left flank, center, and right flank, had archers, heavy infantry, spearmen, and cavalry. On the left flank, he had Norman knights and Britonic infantry. In the center, where not only he was, but also his most trusted companions, who were Roger of Montgomery, Roger de Beaumont, Count William of Evreux, Count Geoffrey of Mortain and Lord of Nogent, William Fitzosborne, Discount Amory Thouar, Lord Walter Giffard of Longueville, Hugh de Montfort, Hugh de Grandemille, William de Warren, William Mallet, Bishop Odo of Bayeux, who was also William's half-brother, Tustin Fitzrolf, who also went by the name Tustin the White, or Tustin Le Blanc, and Engenolf de Lagel. I apologize for the mispro mispronunciations there. In addition to these knights, William's center also held its own contingent of spearmen and heavy artillery. And on William's right flank, spearmen and heavy artillery were most prominent, but it was led by a bit of a surprise character here. Count Eustace II of Bologna. That's right. Our old friend Eustache wanted to get a piece of the English pie, so he joined William's campaign too. 
There was just one more name I want to point out, though, and I've read two accounts, I believe, and I'm not sure which one to trust. So he either served under Count Eustache on the right flank or under William in the center. But either way, his name was Ralph, and he was the Count of Conch in southern Normandy. The castle at Conch, if you remember, was a castle taken by this man, Ralph, this man's father, Roger, whose father was the lord of a place called Tosny. Yes, Ralph de Tosny, son of the Moor Eater and grandson of Raoul de Tosny, who fought under Drogo de Hauteville in southern Italy, was now fighting alongside Duke William there outside of Hastings in 1066. Small world. As the archers repositioned themselves behind Norman lines, a young, cocky knight asked his duke for permission to cast the first blow. William smiled and granted him the honor. The brash young man's name was Taliafer, and he too was mentioned on this podcast back on the episodes describing William's earliest training as a knight. Taliafer stands as a testament to Norman horsemanship, to say the least. He rode forward, alone, and as he rode at full speed, he roused both pride in his countrymen and ire in his opponents, as he stood in his stirrups at a full gallop and juggling his sword, belted out, singing the Song of Roland, an epic poem about Rolla the Walker, William's not-too-distant ancestor. One Englishman let his anger take hold of his senses, and he rushed the Norman Taliefer and was speared by the galloping, singing knight's lance. Hopping off his horse in the no-man's land between enemy armies, he took a handful of the man's hair and chopped until his head tore free from his shoulders. Taliefer mounted his horse again and rode around the area, holding the head up and taunting his enemy with it. As you can imagine, the Norman's side loved it. But another Englishman broke ranks and emerged from the shield wall, springing down the slope. Taliefer rode his horse up the hill to meet the man. His lance pushed through the man's chest and out the other end, but unlike before, Taliefer dropped his lance and kept riding toward the English shield wall, and it was then that William ordered his army forward. Taliefer and his horse disappeared into the center line of the shield wall, no doubt both the man and the horse being hacked to pieces behind the front of enemy lines. Not too much damage to Harold's center occurred, as it said the shield wall quickly reformed and held firm against the Norman advance. According to William of Poitiers, quote, The loud shouting, Here Norman, there foreign, was drowned by the clash of weapons and the groans of the dying. So for a time both sides fought with all their might. The Battle of Hastings had begun. Roughly an hour later, William ordered a withdrawal back to their original positions. It was then, during this pullback, that William noticed his left flank, full of Breton infantrymen, had already turned tail and were running away. He also noticed in the chaos that Harold's right flank, who were opposite the Bretons, made up of largely untrained and inexperienced farmers, were giving chase. Though the English were successful in cutting down many of the fleeing Bretons, they were not ordered to do so, so as it left a gaping hole on Harold's right side. Before he could act, Harold's men had instinctively rushed back to plug the shield wall, and William's opportunity to capitalize on it was lost. For now. Around 2 p.m., both armies were exhausted. 
Charge after charge was led up the hill against Harold's Englishmen, and charge after charge was repelled. It had, you can imagine, come to a point when both armies were doing little more than pushing against each other's shields, and the thought of lifting your weapon, let alone swinging or thrusting it, became almost as exhausting to think about as it was to actually do. Both armies agreed to a temporary ceasefire, you could say. William's men fell back and rested against the hill opposite Harold's hill. As Harold's shield wall began to fall as those men took their rest, within minutes they saw Norman knights storming toward them again. They immediately reformed, and over the next couple of hours they took round after round of Norman cavalry attacks so that it was difficult to gain a full rest as the Norman army was able to do across the way. Honestly, a pretty... Pretty savvy move on William's part. Battle recommenced around 4 p.m. Again, one Norman wave after another pounded the English shield wall, and Harold's line continued to hold. William, no doubt, became very nervous, because if he was unable to defeat Harold soon, night would fall, and by the time the next day came, his forces could be either one of two things. Gone to another location, or reinforced. It was now or never, and William knew this very well. Remembering how the undisciplined right flank of Harold's broke earlier, William decided to revamp his game plan. He ordered his army to rush an attack, then feign retreat, over and over again. Each time, Harold's line held. However, eventually, the lack of English discipline on its right, again, proved itself, and they chased down the Breton left flank of William's again. And just as William was about to strike, a rumor rippled through the Norman lines that William himself had fallen, their duke dead. Now this is, now this is partly true, though. William was, in fact, on his third horse of the day by this time, having had two of his other horses killed beneath him. But instead of riding over to thin out the English right flank, which had broken off down the hill again, he ripped off his helmet and rode around and through the lines, his own lines, screaming that their duke was still alive, still fighting with them. Just as he turned to take advantage again of the opportunity to kill the separated Englishmen, he noticed they were already reforming back at the top of the hill. It was a golden opportunity, and William missed it. This constant battling went on for another hour, until Harold's right flank broke free again and chased the pretending Bretons down the hill once more. William was ready, and he ordered his companions to encircle the Englishmen. Having killed a great many of Bretons throughout the course of the day, these brave but undisciplined English soldiers met their end late in the afternoon. An even less trained contingent of Englishmen filled their gap atop the hill, and Harold most likely prayed that they held on until nightfall. He and his forces just had to hold out, hold out a couple more hours, and he was sure that his reinforcements would arrive and William would be soundly defeated. And October 14th, 1066, would go down as the greatest day in England's already long history, probably even eclipsing the only English king to be labeled the Great, that of Alfred the Great, of course. Harold the Great. Very possible. But around 5 p.m., William's forces were slowing again, as they had earlier that afternoon with the sun high in the sky. The sun far lower now and somewhat shining in the Englishman's eyes, William feigned another retreat, and Harold ordered his brothers 
his two brothers to lead two contingents down to chase William's center line and count Eustace's right flanks down the hill. Within minutes, however, the Normans abruptly turned at the bottom and met the Englishmen head-on, resulting in an English retreat back up the hill, having taken quite a heavy toll in that charge. Heavy toll. That might be the understatement of the day. Earls Leofwina and Gerth were both killed, and Harold had few trusted men at this point to count on. It was a catastrophic mistake on Harold's part, but he saw that he saw what he thought was an opening, and like any great person, he took it. No risk, no reward, right? Well, sometimes. At this, William pushed everyone forward. It was it was all or nothing at this point. Harold had just lost three brothers in a matter of weeks, two just a minute just minutes before, and William was determined to see this battle close before sunset quite literally, if it was the last thing he did. During the difficult climb back up the hill, he, ordered, he had ordered the archers behind him to stand back and aim every arrow right over Norman heads in the hopes that stray arrows might do some damage and maybe thin out the back lines of the shield walls. It did. The archers were, were pretty successful this time. In fact, one archer, a man whose name is lost to all time, changed the course of history with one particular pull and release of his bow. His arrow lifted higher and higher above the fracas, far above the clangs of metal on metal, the deep thuds of splintering wood, wooden teardrop shields, the screams and the moans of agony, the sputtering of air and blood popping from the lips of the painfully wounded. This arrow rose to its climax, high above the battle, I can't imagine what the arrow could have seen. And as its heavy arrowhead turned downward, its forward momentum still carrying it over the heads of those he fired to protect, and then over the heads of those he was fired to destroy, it found itself embedded deep within a man's skull. A man of six feet in height, long blonde hair, a blonde mustache, and a proud bloodline. A man who also wore the crown of England. King Harold Godwinson's body instantly dropped to the ground, lifeless, an arrow protruding from its head. This immediately deflated the English morale, and within minutes the Normans routed the English, though there were several men at all ranks of peasantry and nobility who refused to leave the battlefield without their king, and they chose to die, their bodies stacking up beside Harold's body. Norman knights, hacked those bodies into pieces for good measure, while others escaped frantically back into the impenetrable woods behind Senlac Hill. William had defeated Harold Godwinson. But William was not yet King of England, regardless of how he might have seen it. The battlefield was cleaned and looted, though bodies were left for weeks. However, that evening, Harold's body was found and brought to William's camp. Within a couple days, Githa, Harold, Leofwina, Gerth's mother, asked for her son's body to bury properly, but William refused her request, fearing that Harold Godwinson would become a martyr and a symbol of future English resistance. Instead, William ordered Harold's body to be buried near the shore at a place called Waltham in Sussex, 
though the Waltham Chronicle states that in the year 1120, Harold's body was removed and reburied in a Norman church nearby. But William's fears of martyrdom weren't unfounded. In fact, it's interesting to note, as we will see in a different future season on this podcast, that Anglo-Saxon England may have exchanged its ruling class with that of a Norman one, but the English were not keen on forgetting their past. Within decades, a cult surrounding Harold Godwinson emerged, as well as King Edward being named a saint with the name Edward the Confessor. In the aftermath of the Battle of Hastings, as William traipsed and pillaged the English countryside in an effort to bring the nobility to the negotiation table, hundreds, if not thousands, of Englishmen, so many of them veterans of Hastings and Stamford Bridge, among other fights against the Scottish and the Welsh, left England altogether. It was almost a mass exodus. We will see them again, these, these men, much farther to the southeast, soon enough when they come across a great opportunity to seek a little revenge against their Norman aggressors. But the English did not, as they say, go quietly into that good night. They, they did, in fact, rage, rage against the dying of the light. But Norman rule had landed in Pevensey, established itself outside Hastings, and would, for the next two decades, continue to slowly bring the Anglo-Saxon man and woman to heel. For those wondering about why William was not yet king of England, it all came down to a, a minuscule blip on the English radar. William was not yet the closest, or still not, <laughs> the closest one to the crown in the line of succession. Edward the Exile may have died, but his son, the grandson of the legendary Edmund Ironsides, was still in country, and he had a following of English noblemen propping this teenager up as king in October 1066. In fact, it's said he was referred to as king for another month and a half by much of England, but since he wasn't officially crowned, we do not count him among the English monarchs, much the same way as Swain Forkbeard isn't. However, in December 1066, on Christmas Day, Duke William of Normandy accepted the crown, becoming England's next king, forever extinguishing the prestigious line of Alfred, the House of Godwin, as well as Anglo-Saxon royalty forever. But make no mistake, William was hardly the accepted king of England. If you think that England has been conquered already, then keep listening to the podcast. That, my friends, is an entirely different story that we will flesh out in the future, I promise. I hope you enjoyed today's episode on the very beginnings of the Norman Conquest of England, as well as Season 3 as a whole. There was a ton we covered, but... I found it fascinating. I hope you found it uh, fascinating as well, entertaining, informative, all of the things. Please keep sharing the show on your favorite podcasting service. And please don't forget to contact the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com with topic suggestions, questions, concerns, and yes, even corrections. Also, check out the link to the website. It's up and running. And if you are so inclined, please consider supporting the show on Patreon or Anchor or 
even just heading over to Apple Podcasts and leaving a five-star review. It goes a very long way. On the next episode, well, I am not sure. I have a lot written already, and I have uh, far more researched, um, and I'm not decided on where we're going to go next, and that is exciting to me. There are already options ready and on the table, so it's just a matter of me deciding and then fine-tuning and then recording. So in a couple weeks, I hope you are ready. We will find ourselves in a new place with a new storyline, and you will also start, now that we have a good firm base with which to grow from, you are going to start seeing a lot of that interconnectedness uh, start to come together. The 11th century is not done with us yet. And to be honest with you, that is exciting. You know, you can tell a lot about a person by how they spend their time. And I want to thank you for spending your time learning about our shared past here on Fortune's Wheel Podcast. Until next time.